Is there anybody out there? Yeah. Hi. Oh, hey, there you are. How you doing, David? Good. How are you? Good, good. Just had to get the camera set up here. Well, I appreciate your time. If it's okay with you, I kind of wanted to start at the beginning. Okay. Yeah? Okay. So, let's talk poetry. When did you get into this? Was it when you were younger? Was it, uh, you know, something that you stumbled into later in life? Well, actually, um, at, at different times during my life. So, when I was really young, when I was in like fifth grade, like 10 years old, I was at a school that was kind of an arts magnet. This was in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I was there. I lived there for a couple of years, fourth and fifth grade. And um, there was a young writers conference and my teacher kind of put me in for it and I wrote a book of poems for it. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the beginning. Um, and I, I, that was actually really important to me because it made me, it gave me this kind of identity as a writer at 10, you know? <laughs> um, and then I would come back to poetry off and on throughout the years. A, a really formative thing for me was um, I, I've been really, a, a big inspiration for me is like songwriters. So mm. when I was a little older than that, my, my dad had a cassette tape of Elton John's greatest hits. Oh, and there you go. A, now you're talking. He had a like a songbook that went with it, right? That had like the the music and lyrics. Oh, I love that! And so that really grabbed me. Bernie Tuppen's lyrics were wonderful, and and that really got me into like what language can do, and because there's all these things in there that I didn't really understand at twelve, mm-hmm. but right. But I felt that they were powerful. And then, so again, sort of dabbling in and out. And by the time I was in my mid twenties, I was writing poetry seriously. Oh, wonderful. Do you remember what your first poetry collection was about? Any recollection? <laughs> when I was 10? Yeah, yeah. I don't remember what it was. It, it, I think it was just called poems. It might have been called feelings. Mm-hmm. It was just a bunch of different things. Um, <laughs> it was kind of interesting. I mean, I, it, 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 there, it, there was no sort of central theme. It was just a bunch of sure. different things. But it was interesting because it was lo- I was just sort of experimenting with lots of things. There was some kind of metered rhyming stuff, which is what I write now. Mm-hmm. There were these kind of um, like uh, loose uh, free verse confession. I think at 10, I wrote a poem about like, I think it was called the 4 a.m. blues or something. <laughs> um, and then these little like haikuish things. So it was, it was, you know, kind of trying out different things. Yeah, absolutely. Do you remember anything specifically about that time period during your life when you were younger? Was it, was it a difficult time? Was it an easy time for you? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, you know, I'm, I live in the Bay Area. I've lived here pretty much all my life, except for those two years. My parents had gotten divorced and my mom, my parents are both professors. My mom got a job at University of Washington and we moved to Seattle for a couple of years. So yeah, that, you know, so my brother and my mom and I were living in Seattle. My dad was still down here in the Bay Area. And um, that was not an easy time for me. Mm. Um, in a lot of ways because of that. But I also, I mean, I, I went to a good school, I had good teachers and I had good friends there and stuff. So there was a lot of, of good things happening as well. But I, I think, you know, writing poems, there, I definitely, I wrote a poem about my dad, I wrote a poem about my mom in that book, you know? Mm-hmm. So it definitely was, it opened up to me this ability to like express my sort of inner 
dialogues and things. Yeah. Were your parents uh, fairly excited about you getting into this or did they know anything about it or did they, did they see that in you at that point? Yeah. I mean, I think they always were really encouraging of uh, uh, both my brother and me with any kind of creative pursuits. My brother was a musician and was already by that time mm. um, drumming in his middle school band and stuff like that. Um, and I think, I mean, they always encourage us with different kind of creative and intellectual pursuits. When I did that, I think that it wasn't surprising to them. They were proud of it and, mm. and never, they were always took very seriously my declaring that I was a writer at a young age. Yeah. So there was no friction there. Like, uh, what are you doing? Uh, they understood the, the need for that expression and for it to happen in that way. Absolutely. Oh, good, good. I love that you bring up Bernie Taupin, one of my favorite lyricists ever. Yeah. Um, my parents, in particular, my mom is an Elton John fanatic. Uh, <laughs> with you know, unapologetically, uh, she she says her dream is to go and be Elton John, her husband's caretaker. Uh, <laughs> she has said this to me multiple times um, because she just wants to be around them. But getting that exposure, it I mean, sounds like it might be a lot of work. Oh, well, you know, she, she was a housekeeper her whole life. So she's like, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, <laughs> but, um, what is it that, that, um, that drew you to Bernie Taupin's lyrics and, and that, um, or, or maybe let's start here. Give me your, give me your favorite Bernie Taupin lyrics. If you have oh maybe like one or two. Well, right now I, it would be Skyline Pigeon and you know, actually my dad also had a cassette of here and there, the live album. And so Skyline Pigeon was on that. Yeah. So it wasn't in that songbook, but um, those lyrics actually were really, it was, it, I mean, like, um, free me from this aching metal ring. I immediately connected that to, to a wedding ring and to a divorce because my parents had gone through that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it, what opened up in my mind was this idea of, you know, imagery and symbolism and some symbolic language and stuff. Right. So I mean, that might not be as, uh, as brilliant a lyric now as it seemed to me then, but at, at that moment it opened up. Yeah. And I, I love that you bring him up though, because it, it was that effortlessness, right? Where mm -hmm. he's having a conversation with you. And I remember just being obsessed with Daniel, the song, Daniel, Yeah, it, it just felt like he was weaving an imagery that didn't feel like a chore. It didn't feel like. There, there was, you know, an added kind of artifice. It was just part of the conversation. And, uh, to this day, I mean, I, I and I, I guess there is that emotional component, right? Where you just feel like, oh God, this transports me back to a place. And I, I can almost listen to that song and just start weeping. It's just too much sometimes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If I, I think there are definitely some song Daniel and, and maybe rocket man. And there's a few mm -hmm. others where you know, there was some idea of the gist of it, but it wasn't completely clear to me what the song was about, Yeah. but I still was able to connect to it personally. And that I think was a, a big idea for me too, is just understanding that that's something that art does. It allows people to connect personally with something that may not even be, you know, like the author's intent or whatever, but right. Um, right. Yeah. So getting that kind of exposure early on and just feeling like you, you were just kind of thrust into this world of of uh writing poetry when did you actually decide you know what i'm going i'm gonna 
go to school for this, or this is going to be my vocation? Or was it just an effortless thing where you just said, this is a part of me now? I wouldn't call it effortless. Um, <laughs> I, I never went to school for it. I, I never studied poetry. My, my poetry education has been completely haphazard, which I've kind of liked. Mm. I, I'm not sure why poetry is what emerged out of this whole early writer identity as the thing mm. that I'd be doing, um, and let alone metered rhyming poetry. I, I really don't know. I, um, I, I, so you tried other things, right? You, you, it seems like you dabbled yeah. in, in other things until you said, oh, this just feels more like my speed. Well, yeah. I mean, most of the, for, for school too, you know, writing essays and stories for school and things like that. And I was a good writer in school. I always was a good writer. That was a thing that helped me get through things. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it helped me, you know, like get good grades and get jobs and things like that. Um, poetry just kept rearing its ugly head, I guess. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I never thought of it as a vocation I mean, it was never like a career path or anything to me. It was always clear to me that it was not something that was going to pay the bills unless I, mm. you know, went to school for it and you know, got an MFA and a, maybe a PhD or something like that. But I, yeah. it was always going to be something I was going to have to make time for. Right. So you, you uh, had an idea then to pursue education. Was that something that, that you, you kind of settled on? Actually, that took a while as well. I, I mean, early, when I was uh, 17 or 18, I thought my stepmom was a middle school um, special ed teacher, and I volunteered with her to support her class a few times. And that, mm. I thought, well, this is something I probably could do. But I didn't, I, I went to school. I mean, I, I um, my parents were both professors, and that was sort of my idea. Like, yeah. I mean, I had a double major in anthropology and philosophy, and I was going to go to grad school and do all these things. And I, but I kind of did other things and came back to it later when I was, I guess, around 30 years old and okay. went to a credential program and became a teacher then. So it's something that I think, again, kind of like poetry, had been calling to me for a while, but I hadn't come around to it. Right. And you, you do, uh, I, I, at least I noticed in your portfolio or your resume, uh, is mathematics a big part of the teaching that you did? Uh, well, that's interesting. I, um, I was for a while a, a math specialist. Mm. Um, my, most of my teaching career has been in kindergarten and first grade. And so I joined the sort of team of math specialists in my district. Okay. And that was my area of expertise, like pre-k through first grade math so i'm really good at counting um, <laughs> but um that happened really because math was kind of a weak area of practice and i decided to kind of go into that math teacher leadership to learn more about it and get better at it i see um what's what's the biggest barrier for kids when they're learning that stuff at the beginning when they're learning math um the biggest barrier is just sort of cultural ideas about like innate math ability mm -hmm. like people think they're not a math person or i'm not good at math and so it's really kind of mindset issues about that that's the biggest barrier interesting um, there was there was a quote on your website about the wild geography of misplaced things which is your poetry 
collection, which is a beautiful, beautiful, evocative name uh, for the collection, by the way. Uh, they, they said that you, you cared for the words much like you would care for, for students, or at least they made that kind of comparison. Um, do you think that's the case? Like you approach poetry in such a way? Yeah, I, I definitely, I mean, I, I love words. I think that's probably what made, made me be a poet more than anything else. I'm not, I'm at the unit of the word, not at the unit of the sentence or the mm. paragraph or whatever. Um, so playing with words is where I get stuck. Mm. And, and I mean that in a kind of happy stuck. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that that idea of sort of careful attention is similar, but I mean, caring for kids is a different thing too. I mean, <laughs> that involves absorbing all kinds of other things. Right, right. Emotionally. And, yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. I can't imagine, especially given this last year, what you folks have gone through. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're in Oakland, you said? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was your experience during COVID uh, during that time? Well, uh, it was, it was rough. We, you know, and um, when, when it first happened, it was, you know, that March of 2020, it was just about spring break. So everyone went into spring break and there was this sort of fake thing that none of us really believed that, oh, well, we'll, we'll be back after spring break. This will all be done. Right? Yeah. But that was a really rough time because there was only a couple months left in the school year. and really what we were spending our time doing is like wellness checks, contacting families and seeing how they're doing and helping get them. A lot of the families that we were serving at the school I was at, you know, they didn't have internet and oh, we had to send Chromebooks home with them. So they would have equipment and stuff. Um, so a lot of it was just sort of helping them find the places where they could get that kind of stuff for free. And wow. And then last year we were teaching all online, which was just horrible. I mean, I, the I, I don't know how to do the job other than building relationships with the students, right? Yeah. And it's just really hard to do over Zoom. Oh, I bet. Um, yeah. And then in the, at the same time, there's just all this other kind of noise going on about, you know, people saying, well, the kids should be back in school. And, you know, as if the teachers wouldn't prefer that ourselves, but we just, you know, we, there was no way that it made sense to put everyone at risk like that because right. you know, schools are just petri dishes for viruses. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm very grateful for what you do as an educator. I think it's it's one of the core things that we need in this country right now. Uh, more than ever, we we just need to emphasize the importance of what you guys do. Uh, so I'm sorry that it was a, a rough time for you, but what what do you think we're left with in the aftermath of this? Uh, how do we move forward uh, <laughs> if if there is such a way how do we pick up the pieces i mean i think you know the education system is uh uh it's an institution constructed in this society and therefore reflects our culture and so i think similarly to every other institution there was an opportunity here to reevaluate everything to kind of think about different ways to organize um, how we're all living. And it seems like none of that's happening at all. Right. We're kind of falling right back into everything only worse. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the case in schools. I mean, I think 
you know, there was all this talk over the summer that, okay, we're going back in person. So let's focus on social emotional well-being with students all year and not worry too much about so-called learning gaps and things like that. Mm. But that was all just sort of lip service because the minute we get back in school, it's, oh, here's this new curriculum. Here's the new assessment. Let's make sure everybody does this. And, you know, business as so, usual, right? Yeah, uh, maybe worse, you know, uh -huh. in a lot of ways. Ironically, I, 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 you were just sort of um, saying those nice things about this career of mine, but I've actually decided to leave the profession at the end of this school year. So oh, goodness. I've been doing it for 21 years, and I'm going to wow. do something else now. So, so this, was, this was the right time to part, this solidified in your mind a, a need to... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I may have come to this conclusion without the last two years being the way they were. It's just been a long time, mm -hmm. and it's a job that that um, that takes that it. It's enervating emotionally and mentally, and and those those things go on after school hour. I mean, you're constantly yeah. sort of depleted and. And it interferes with with writing. It interferes with you know other kinds of intellectual pursuits. And um, I, I I don't regret the twenty one years I spent in it. I just think it's time to go. You know, yeah. Richard Hugo, who's one of my favorite poets, and in, in in Triggering Town, which is one of my favorite books, he talks about you know he taught creative writing at University of Montana for a long time, and he talks about teaching, and he says teachers like like you know, police officers and firefighters and service people should be able to retire after 20 years with a full pension. I agree. He says, <laughs> the line he has is something like, the risks may be different, but they're real. And that, that I feel deeply, the, the risks are real in terms yeah. of, uh, you know, like I was saying before about kind of absorbing a lot of the emotional experiences that your kids are going through and all that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that was actually my next question is how you get any writing done or how you got any writing done during this COVID year or the last couple of years that have been so tumultuous and, and difficult. And I'm sure even more emotionally draining than the, the yeah. average year, which for a teacher is pretty insane. I mean, this has always been a struggle for me. Um, just like I'm, I'm, I'm at my best. First of all, at my best, like if, if I'm being productive, I'm still very sort of slow and, and um, unprolific. Um, but at my best, I'm in a routine where I'm writing at the same time every day for about the same amount. I see. And that stops and starts all the time. Um, the last couple of years have been super hard for sure. Just because I'm so drained outside of the work hours, that it's just hard to have the energy to sustain anything, to work on anything. Mm -hmm. um, one, one thing that helps me when I'm having that kind of a block is to turn to translation. I've done right. a number of translations. And what's great about that is I don't have to like dream up new content. So yeah. it's all, and, and my, I, you know, I write metered rhyming poems, so I'm translating works that are written in meter and rhyme into meter and rhyme. Mm. And so most of what I'm doing are these sort of um, 
I, I can just make these aesthetic decisions and sort of craft-based decisions and not have to dream up new content. Mm. That really helps a lot. So it's like you're, you take a moment to just look at the mechanics of the poem rather than, than the actual, uh, emotional yeah. content or, or, you know, the, yeah, you're looking at the framework then when you well, do those. I, I mean, I can look at all those things. I mean, I'm picking poems that I admire mm. and that speak to me in some way, but, but I don't have to like create those experiences for uh, out of, out of thin air. Right? right. I'm just, all I'm trying to do is be as faithful as I can to the poet within these parameters. So it, it's, I guess it's a bit more intellectual than, than emotional. And that makes it a little easier to handle when I'm emotionally depleted. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Can you tell me about Lope de Vega? Uh, there's, uh, there's one that I recognize <laughs> from my theater education. I uh, haven't seen him in a while. What drew you to his work specifically? I'm not fluent in Spanish, but I'm working on it. Uh, I know enough to be able to use some, you know, dictionary resources and attack the poems. What drew me was looking for for Spanish poems that were written in form that I could translate, mm. and um, I was. I was attracted to the Sigla del Oro because it was so long ago that it's like at that point and a little bit now I'd be nervous about like trying to translate contemporary mm -hmm. stuff because I, I don't want to mess it up. But somehow it felt like someone like Lope de Vega has been translated a, a million times already. And so and also the translations I had read, I didn't like very much. So a lot of times, a lot of times it was like really flowery language and not really the way he wrote mm. and or and or they weren't translating the meter and the rhyme and that's my specialty so i thought that's something i could add to yeah. the legacy of of that and then i was looking through a book of golden age spanish poem poets and found the one the various effects of love is how the titles often translate, which is really just a series of like verbs and adjectives to describe love <laughs> and um that just felt like something i could sink my teeth into and once i did that i just started turning to more and more of lope's sonnet mm. are there other poets from it doesn't have to be that same time period but from any era that you feel that you feel exemplify what what you can do with those those forms I think, I mean, most of the poets in that era were writing in meter and rhyme in, in specific forms. And I think the best of them were masters of it. Um, and I mean, I, Lope is one of my favorites, but I think I'm, my real favorite is uh, Luis de Leon, who was a, a monk at the University of Salamanca in the 16th century. Mm. And he wrote these long odes that had a really sort of specific metrical pattern and rhyming pattern and um really wonderful stuff so I've, yeah. I've started working on that a lot nice and at that time they didn't have a choice right wasn't it something like the they they were beholden to an academy or was that only in france I, and i apologize if i get the time periods wrong <laughs> you know i don't know a lot I, I don't know all the details about that i mean there are a lot of a lot of impositions on the expectations for yeah. the, those people i mean you know um, Luis de Leon was an outspoken person at, at, in Salamanca and he, he got in trouble with the Inquisition for, mm. he, he translated, um, 
the the Song of Songs into Spanish, and he used the original Hebrew instead of the Latin Vulgate and stuff. And so he ended up being imprisoned for wow. a few years by the Inquisition because of that, and also because he was confused of being a converso, which meant that he had grandparents who were Jewish. Um, oh wow! So, so they they weren't. He was. Only... <laughs> oh man. well, I mean, it's just. The Inquisition was the Inquisition. I, really, I think it amounted to political stuff going on at the university, and so other people kind of, you know, ratted him out to the Inquisition. I think that's usually how it worked. But he is a very interesting case. Usually, what happens when you go to when you're imprisoned by the Inquisition is you end up confessing. He never did. He was acquitted, wow. which is very unusual. And it's a great story. He comes out at his first time back at the University of Salamanca in his lecture hall. He begins his lecture, his first time back after being in prison. He says, as we were saying the other day, you know, <laughs> and you can go, I, my wife and I actually went to Europe a couple of years ago and you can go to the University of Salamanca and go to his lecture hall and stand in there. Oh, wow. And it's amazing because there's like all these like wooden benches and long wooden desks with all these carvings in it. And it's like, so it's like 500 years of students like doodling on their desks. Wow. It's, it's amazing. So did you feel like that was a pilgrimage, like something that you had to do? Or was that just kind of happenstance where you're like, oh, we're, we're going to be here? Well, I mean, when we decided we were going to go there, I definitely wanted to <laughs> go visit that just from yeah. my own taste. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. I love that. I guess that contradiction, right, of, of most people or some people might say that working in meter and rhyme can be so constricting. But yet you have somebody of that ilk who's like, I'm going to defy using using these restrictions or these impositions or this form. Uh, I just think there's something very uh, interesting, very contradictory about that, maybe in a way. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the things about writing form. I think people that do it a lot don't understand the idea that it's a straitjacket of some kind because you feel in some ways like form create it, what it does is just create the boundaries within which you can be free mm -hmm. right um so i i think rena espayat said something like i think it was her who said it like i i never feel as i feel more constricted in free verse than i feel than i do in form and more free when I'm writing form than I do in free or something like that. <laughs> right. I'm not, that, that's a terrible, uh, but I get, I get what but, you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but I don't have any like programmatic programmatic thing about it. I, I used to run a, a poetry reading series that focused on form and just having, having poets come and read and form, even poets that didn't normally write in form, but did sometimes. Mm. Or, and I'd ask them this question all the time. Why do you write in form or look what, and they have all kinds of interesting answers. I, I don't have an interesting answer. It's, uh, it's uh, an irresistible compulsion that is like, I consider it one of my many neuroses. I don't know. Oh, I love it. I love it. Can you tell me about how the wild geography of misplaced things, this wonderfully titled collection came to be? How long did that take for you to put together? I mean, that was really just a collection or selection of poems that I had written for years so all like all the poems that i had written since i sort of started seriously mm -hmm. writing in my 
mid twenties till about 10 years ago when it was put together. And I just sort of culled out of all the things that I've written, the ones that I thought kind of held together and well. And, and then I just started submitting it. I started submitting it to book contests and I would get like, um, semi-finalist which i'm not sure what that means but <laughs> and then finally i found this press um kelsey books puts out a lot of great stuff in that oh okay i submitted it there and they took it oh go ahead sorry no go ahead that's oh i was just gonna ask if there were some unifying themes that you didn't see initially but then after the fact you're like oh i am i've been talking about this for a long time yeah yeah i think so i mean I, i'm there's definitely always sort of themes that emerge that you come back to over and over again. And uh, the, the book is divided into three sections. And I think each section kind of focuses on, you know, some very rough kind of, of a theme. Um, and so, yeah, I think the process of sort of sorting through poems and trying to pick which ones I wanted to include led me to the finding these kind of, these, these sections kind of emerged that way. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Do you have any, any plans once you move out of, uh, the, the education system to do another one? Is, is that something that you're not concerned with at the time? Yeah. I, I mean, I, again, I'd like, I'd, it, it, I'd like to have another book at some point. It's interesting. Cause it seems like a lot these days it's becoming more and more popular to like, conceive of a book around a theme that follows a certain arc mm -hmm. um and i i think i i don't know if i if that's in me but i definitely would like to get it to a point where i have a, a, again enough material to kind of put into a, a book I'm, I'm hoping one of my one of the ideas about this career change is you know if i right now you know i get up really early in the morning and then i get ready to go and i go to work and i work all these hours I don't get paid for. And mm -hmm. if I had a job close to home that was like a nine to five job, I would probably gain a couple hours every morning. So I'm really hoping to be able to write a lot more. I'd also like to see what I can do about a translation collection maybe. Um, and I also, a couple of years ago, started a, a book length poem. Oh, wow. That what might be fun if I can manage that. So I, I have a lot of projects sort of in pieces. And that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to make this shift in my working life to create more space. I'm, you know, I'm 53 years old. So I'm, I'm coming down, I'm coming down toward retirement, hopefully, mm -hmm. at some point. Yeah. And I it's time to sort of arrange my life in a way that's um, allows me to do things I want to do. Absolutely. And I apologize, but this is somewhat unrelated, but I just find the topic so interesting and so necessary to talk about. Um, for those who are starting out in your field, um, in the field that you're about to exit, what, what would you say to them to consider, to, to look forward to, to ponder on as you, you kind of reflect on that, that life? Um, I would first encourage them to go and volunteer. In, in multiple different sort of grade levels to see what the job really looks like and just kind of try to zero in and focus on what the teachers are doing and how they're spending their time to just to get a real idea of it. Mm. 
um, and at different grade levels. You know, when I when I first was thinking about teaching, I volunteered at high school, high school English class, and um, and I liked it, but it didn't grab me as much as you know. As a grad student, I was teaching college courses, and then I went to high school, and then I went. I kept going lower and lower. And when I was volunteering <laughs> with my daughter's kindergarten teacher, that was like, oh, early literacy is something that really grabbed me. So mm. that's one thing I would do. Like, you, you, you check out what different grade levels are like because they're all very different. But the other thing is to really pay attention to what the job is really like and mm. talk to teachers about. It. I mean, even just like, I don't know, following teacher Twitter, you'll. <laughs> You'll hear, I, I just think it, I don't, I wouldn't want to discourage someone, but I would want them to hear all the discouraging things about it. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't handle it, you're going to, it's going to break you. Right. No, I mean, you, you, you go into it with feeling like you're going to do something important for the world, something on the plus side. And if after a couple of years, you feel like you just can't handle it. Then, then you come out of it feeling diminished, and that. So, just going into it with some clarity about what it's really like. Right. So, speaking of Twitter, uh, I I was just kind of checking out your Twitter here uh, a little while back, and uh, I, uh, I'm not a like a hip hop guy or or a rap guy, but you you had shared something about the your favorite rapper, and I I, I was curious why you think Kendrick Lamar is uh, is your favorite rapper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. That's just one of those things where people have these lists of your favorite, your all-time favorite. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I would pick Kendrick, Kendrick Lamar again <laughs> if in a different mood. That's just what came to me. I, I mean, I think he's amazingly talented and amazing. Uh -huh. I mean, all the things that you love in a poet, brilliant, um, brilliant use of of the sounds of language to you know it sounds by themselves impart some meaning mm -hmm. and he's really great at that um and also just the content of the words but um and he's a craftsman i mean most great rappers are i mean I'm a, as a formal poet i'm a, really moved by that because rhythm and, and rhyme and alliteration and all those tools are there but i think he also just um of this sort of generation of rappers is communicating what's going on in the world really well mm. but i have other faves <laughs> yeah what are some other faves from other eras if i if you don't mind me asking i know we we talked in terms of songwriting uh bernie Taupin, but are there others that's that really kind of um songwriters yeah yeah songwriters yeah i have uh, i think i mean john prine is a huge huge Im impact oh, yeah. on me um gillian welch um jason isbell Mm -hmm. This sort of this genre, this kind of Americana genre, this kind of somewhere between rock and country and folk. Yeah. I, I'm, but those those three in particular, I think, are really great craftspeople. Um, Sarah Jarosa is someone I've gotten really interested in lately too. She's mm -hmm. a really good songwriter. Bob Dylan, you know, you can't not yeah, mention yeah. Dylan because <laughs> at his, you know, a lot of times I'll I'll listen to some some of these other people and go you know i think maybe pound for pound you know prine is better than dylan but but then if you hear dylan's best things it's like people don't touch yeah. it <laughs> but um 
I also I, I was I I was always a big Who fan, so Pete Townsend is someone whose writing I admire a lot. Mm. But definitely songwriters in the kind of rock pop soul world have been a big influence on me. Um, and if I if I was listing like my top five poetical influences, Prine would probably be in there. Mm. Um, even though. I think he would have insisted that he's not a poet, that he's a songwriter. And he's right to say that. They're different. Yeah. I've written songs too. It's, it's a different thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. Yeah. What can we take from songwriting over to poetry? Specifically, I guess in your case, what have you taken from songwriting to poetry? That's interesting. Uh, that's interesting because poetry came first for me and then songwriting. So I took things from poetry into songwriting. But what influences me from songwriters is the lyrics, this, the, the economy of it. You know, a song is, is relatively short. There's fewer lines than, than a poem, maybe. So you have, so the words have to do a lot of work and move, cover ground a lot. Mm. The particular songwriters that I'm most interested in do something, some things that the poets I'm most interested do also, which is sort of write about characters or from a character's perspective, like persona kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I'm always interested in that. John Prine is a great example. I think, I mean, he's the, he's the poet of empathy in a way, right? He can, <laughs> you know, at 25 years old, he wrote, he wrote, um, Angel from Montgomery, right? Yeah. So how did, how did this 25-year-old <laughs> man write this story about this aging woman and, and do it you know, the first line of that, of that song is, I am an old woman. And you buy it from the beginning. How does that happen? Yeah. So the poets that I admire, Richard Hugo, E.A. Robinson, Hardy, um, are people that do the same kinds of things. Mm. No, that's, that's absolutely lovely. Um, are there some works that you're listening to or reading or um, contemporary works that um, mm. have, have informed what you do or that are really kind of sticking with you at the moment, things that you've, that you've really enjoyed? Well, um, I mean, some of those songwriters I mentioned, they are They're pretty contemporary. Yeah. Right now. Jason Isbell is, you know, top yeah. of his game. Um, and there's some other songwriters, like I mentioned, Sarah Juros, I think John Moreland is another really good songwriter that, that I listen to. Um, in terms of poetry, poetry, like I said before, my poetry education has been pretty haphazard, so I like jump around all <laughs> over the place. Um, but there are some some current poets that that I've been into more. Um, Taylor Bias, I think, is someone who's really talented, and I have her two chapbooks that I've been reading through. And she's someone who uses form but pushes the I think she's a great example of this sort of I don't know, you know, there's been this sort of, uh, these schools of, you know, neo-formalists and free verse writers and stuff. And this is, I think she's a great example of this sort of post-conflict, you know, after that conflict is not useful anymore, taking, taking what's valuable from different traditions and putting them together. Mm. So I really, I've, I've admired that about her I'm trying to think of uh, off the top of my head, some of the people that, <laughs> sorry, I put course, you on the spot. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I should have been thinking about this and to prepare for this, right? But um, Tracy K. Smith, I think, is a great, a great poet. There's a poet named Lynn Knight that maybe not a lot of people know about, that she's one of my favorite poets as well. Again, someone who mostly writes free verse, but it's sort of informed by meter and some structure and things as well. Awesome. Um, awesome. Got a couple more. Just want to be respectful of your time, but uh, with Twitter and the online community of, of support, just, just being there 24 seven, has it helped you along the way? Do you feel like having those kinds of resources being online, has that made a difference in your writing at all? Or do you encourage that? Uh, that's interesting. I, I mean, I think Twitter, I think, has been helpful in, I want to say, connecting me with other writers and poets. Although those, those, those connections, as personal connections, they're not that deep, but, but it's just like feeling a part of a community. Mm -hmm. And that's helpful to me. I, I've not been a part of a poetry community very often. There was a time when I would, there's, a, there's an online um, sort of workshop group called Eratosphere that focuses on formal stuff. And for a while I was a, a pretty active part of that group. But other than that, I have not really um, been a part of a like poetry community. So it's kind of nice for that purpose. And also kind of connects me with like what other people are reading and things like that. Mm. Um, Kind of keeps but you Twitter, fresh. I mean, Twitter can also be really distracting. And oh, yeah. there's been times, uh, like, as with everyone, there have been times when I've sort of deleted it from my phone and tried to stay off it for a while. Oh, and then I yeah. come back to it. That's me every other week. Like, I just can't yeah. stand myself sometimes when I, I've been on there and I don't even say anything anymore. I'm just like reading everyone's point of view. And, and then I have to take a nice big break. I, and this is, sorry, this is super random, but I noticed that you planted oh. a tree. Did you plant a tree? Yeah, we planted a tree. I mean, we, you know, we're always working on on the house, and we just planted a cherry tree in the backyard. Um, that <laughs> in a few years we hope will be a shade tree. Right? Oh no, I, yeah. I just I, I thought you know, like in in all of the stuff that's going on Twitter, you know, like I stop and see that, and I'm like, that's just a beautiful, beautiful moment to rest and just kind of stop for a while. Yeah. You know, my wife is a teacher also, and um, there's just a lot going on in our lives. And it's nice to do something like that. To have, I mean, there's so, you know, if you think really not just the last couple of years, but like the last, you know, six years or so since, since Trump was elected, yeah, it's just been wave after wave of dystopia becoming real. And the world is really constantly assaulting us so to do something as sort of you know thoughtful of the future as planting a tree is a nice thing to do it feels good <laughs> i love that 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 made my day so uh, i i appreciate it one last question here for you okay sure um what would you say poetry has given you in this life what uh, has it done for your quality of life <laughs> um oh well it's different things i mean sometimes it's sometimes it's not been that positive sometimes it's been uh it's added a 
a set of stressors I might not have otherwise had. But overall, I mean, from an early age, I think it's just, um, it's given me a place to go to sort of focus my emotional and intellectual energy that I can feel, uh, control is not the right word, but I can feel like um, I'm, I'm, that, that's manageable mm. in a way. I mean, I think it's do it does for me what it does for everyone, what it does for lay readers. It provides language for things that ordinary language has trouble expressing. Um, and, I, and so it's made me love language. It's made me love words. It's given me an identity for myself. I mean, I don't know about external identity, but it's given me a way to think about myself that's not connected to work or you know, family or, you know, social position and privilege and things like that. It's just something separate from all of the, the sort of demands of those other things. Um, yeah, that's, that's my best answer at this moment. Oh, and I love your best answer. I think it was really well put, really well said. And uh, on that note, is there anything else that you'd like to add about the journey, about poetry, about life? What's on your mind? Anything else? <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. Okay. Um, well, yeah. I am so grateful to have had the chance to talk to you and to learn from you. I think that um, the work that you've done as an educator, you know will not go unnoticed. And there's so many lives that you've um, uh, impacted during the years that uh, I wish you the best on your next chapter. And I think it's going to be awesome. And I wish you all the writing time in the world. I think it's going to be pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. Honey. This has been really fun. Awesome. Well, I, uh, let me know when you get that next uh, poetry collection. I'll be around. I'd love to catch up and talk about it too. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, I hope you have a great day and I'll talk to you real soon. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye. Bye.